Hi, we're here with another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. And today we're going to focus our discussion on something that we haven't spoken about in other episodes, and that's China. I'm really pleased to be joined today by my very good friend and colleague at the Center for Security Policy in Washington, uh, Dr. Stephen Bryan. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you for having me on your program. Oh, I'm so we're, we're honored. Uh, we being the royal we, me, myself and I, I'm honored to have you joining me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. So we're it's mutual, as they say. No, thanks. Well, let me just give a brief intro and then you fill out everything that I'm that I'm getting wrong. But but Stephen is, I think, my go to guy He's a world expert on military platforms, technology, um, and and really um, the uh, what did I write here? An armament strategy, right? What what it is that how how nations should be, uh, what technologies are important, what aren't, and how new technologies impact uh, uh, geopolitics in various ways. Uh, he worked for many years at the Pentagon dealing with specifically these kinds of issues. I think he was involved with uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative with uh, under the Reagan administration with developing uh, uh, the Star Wars program, as it was known. Um, and uh, we're going to talk now, uh, we're going to start a discussion talking about the new technologies uh, that uh, China has introduced in what can only be seen as their weaponization of outer space. Uh, and uh, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, geostrategic implications of this for American national security and also for uh, and also for the security of, of American allies that are dependent on American GPS uh, system and on the United States more generally uh, as a global superpower. So we're going to talk about all of those things uh, now. And uh, Stephen, I, 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 you know, I contacted you after I read the reports on uh, China's uh, test of a hypersonic uh, space missile, and in, in uh, it took place in August, and mm-hmm. and uh, it was only reported last month by the Financial Times. And then I think last week, uh, Gordon Chang uh, reported uh, up at the Gatestone Institute that China has also uh, deployed a satellite killing satellite, um, which they say that the purpose is to clear out space garbage, space debris, but uh, space junk. Space junk. So that, that's the professional term, uh, space junk. That's, that's what they call it. Uh, I'm, I'm accepting it's professional. Okay, well, but the, so the professional term is space junk. And space of course, from a Chinese perspective, uh, a space junk can easily be interpreted as being U.S. satellites. So these two things, I think, are are, I mean, they're very alarming to the Pentagon, and I think they should be alarming to anybody who's paying attention to them. So can you just describe the technology, first of all? What, what we're, is, dealing, we're dealing with two different technologies. That right. are really, so one is hypersonic. Right. Uh, so let's talk about the hypersonic missiles first and then and what that means, for instance, for the U.S. Uh, defenses against uh, nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear attack. And second, uh, let's t- and and what the United States is doing to meet that challenge, and then we can move on to the satellite uh, killing satellites. So, can you explain? Uh, we've heard a lot about hypersonic missiles, and um, and I know that the United States has has recently developed hypersonic capabilities. The Russians have it. The Chinese have it. What is it? Uh, what is it exactly? Can you can you just briefly? Yeah, describe? sure. 
Well, I mean, anything that's hypersonic is regarded as uh, traveling at five times or more the speed of sound. Okay. The speed of sound is around 767. I'll be going to get in trouble on this, but <laughs> somewhere okay, around I won't 767 miles an hour, uh, give or take a few. And uh, somewhere I wrote down the actual numbers. And uh, so five times that, you know, uh, is where you're going. Um, and then and then you can go all the way up to what they call, and those are called Mac. So you have Mach 1, and that's one time the speed of sound. Mach 5 is 5. Now you're in the hypersonic area, and these weapons allegedly can go as high as Mach 20, 20 times the speed of sound, which is extraordinarily fast. The, the big uh, issue in technical terms is that the faster you go, the more you deal with the atmosphere, the hotter the, hotter the environment gets, the more difficult it is to make them work. So most of them seem to be hovering between Mach 5 and Mach 10 seems to be the convenient area. So that's what they do. I mean, now there's there, there are two different general types, the type to go into space and then come back to the Earth. And these, these are, are basically gliders, uh, not powered, and the type that fly in the atmosphere and more like tactical weapons. Uh, and and these usually have to have a power system and mostly something called a scramjet. So I can explain all what those things are, but the main point to understand is that there's both tactical and strategic hypersonic weapons. China has both, and the Russians have both. The United States has neither. Okay. The United States has neither, but I thought that the United States had developed a... a we're working on it, but we're working on it, but we don't have any system that's deployed today. And frankly, I don't think we have any system that's close to being deployed. Whereas the Russians have their strategic system up called the Vanguard, which sits on top of an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. And that's a glider that goes up into space and it comes down. It skims the atmosphere as a glider, uh, picks out a target and hits it at 10 times the Mach 10. But um, how, how does it work? How is it? Because I know that the Chinese missile that they, that we'll get back to in a second after we give a general explanation that it it missed its target apparently by around twenty miles. But these are supposed right. to be highly precise, and they're also supposed to be impossible to intercept. So, uh, well, because what's the there's a bunch of reasons there. Okay. I mean, first of all, they are maneuverable, so they don't just fly in a straight like a ballistic missile. For the most part, flies in a straight line. You can predict from here to here where it's going to be, and then you can intercept it and destroy it. The hypersonic glider can be uh, like an airplane, can maneuver. So it may not be where you think it's going to be. So that's part of it. Uh, the speed is part of it. The closure time to, to intercept is very limited. If you can detect it, <clears throat> that's the other part of it. The, these things are very difficult to detect. Radar has trouble picking them up. Um, so uh, it's it's a difficult proposition to uh, to both see them coming and then to deal with them, and then actually we have no particular defense against hypersonic weapons at the present time. So basically, what you're saying is that we've had a massive breakthrough technologically by America's uh, primary foes, China and Russia, or superpower rivals. It's or even more interesting. Uh, we cooperated with China and Russia and other countries 
Britain, uh, Australia, French, uh, on hypersonic de de engine development with NASA in the early 2000s. So basically, we did it as a science project with all of them. And so they took advantage of the know-how. A lot of it involves uh, uh, two things. One is the materials, because they have very high temperatures. And you've seen the space vehicles that come in with astronauts, and they land, and they get all blackened on the outside, and they have special tiles. All that's to keep them cool, um, and, and so they don't break up. Uh, these, these weapons have to survive as well for the same reasons. Uh, and that's a lot of technology. So that's a big part of it. And the other big part of it is how you make the engine work when it's under those kinds of huge stresses, because that also is important if you're dealing with a, 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 a one that uses a scramjet. So those are things that we worked on with our friends and allies and not so much friends and allies. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we stopped. We just stopped for a long time, like 10 years. So that's insane. So the United States basically developed the the technology. They, the United States gave the Chinese and the Russians the rope to hang it. Yeah, I mean, one of our early systems, I think, I forgot the year, uh, was actually tested in Russia by us. So wait, this was a, just out of curiosity, because this is this is actually kind of shocking. This was during whose presidency? That was it. Clinton? Was it Bush? Who, who was? I think doing it probably starts in the near the end of the Clinton administration, but then you got into Bush, and then you get into Obama. And it just went on and on. Nobody bothered about it. And 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 the United States. Why did it not? continue plowing on and developing these these weapons like the Chinese and the Russians? What, what was the concept? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I mean, it was perfectly obvious that the Russians and the Chinese were moving in that direction, but we didn't. Because by 2018, uh, when the Russians, I think they had some sort of a test, um, I, I, there was a lot of I don't know, panic, very uh, fervent concern voiced by generals in the Pentagon. And then uh, uh, then President Trump started talking about the super duper missiles that we were going to be building, which were clearly he was referring to hypersonic missiles. At least that's how I read it. Mm. And and and, um, and we started to work on. But uh, I think the big fear was in the Pentagon, the Russians were testing the Vanguard missile, which is a missile and a glider. Mm hmm. Um, and there were a couple of things that worried them. The first is I don't, they, did, they weren't sure they could detect it once it was launched. And they saw it as a potential first strike weapon. And the great worry in, in the people who worry about nuclear security, nuclear weapons and, and missiles and all this, is the danger of some, your, your enemy or your presumed enemy uh, may have a first strike capability. And, and that's what the worry was. That, that's where they were shocked because they didn't expect it. And uh, no, they're still shocked. <laughs> now now uh, General Milley is shocked about the Chinese one. Um, it's the same difference, frankly. It's, it looks to be like the early stages of developing first strike weapons. First strike means you wipe out the other guy and you can't respond. 
And the United States has no defenses against this either. I mean, all of the anti uh, anti missile uh, shields that the United States are both pointing in the wrong direction and ineffective for for handling hypersonic missiles because, as you said, they can change their flight path. Uh, right. Right. It, well, we have very little missile defense anyway. Right. Um, unlike Israel, where you're sitting, uh, which has layered a layered system, the United States does not. In fact, the United States only has uh, on its on uh, in the continental United States a system posted in uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in uh, California, and the same system also up at Fort Greeley in Alaska. That's called the ground-based interceptor, but that is only capable of dealing with anything coming from North Korea. It's not that's not it's not aimed at China. It's not sufficient to deal with the Chinese issue. And then we have some air defenses on our ships, uh, the Aegis system, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty good system, but it's not really a space defense system. And it's certainly no good for hypersonic. So the Chinese uh, uh, tested this this weapon and what so what was specifically uh, alarming about about the weapon, the the hypersonic missile that the Chinese tested in in uh, August? Well, to begin with, because we have no way to defeat it and that it can hover, you know, can be in space, in orbit. And then one day they launch it. So from that point of view, it's very threatening because for lots of reasons, but I think the main one is, is again, it's a first strike potential and it's very close to you. You know, it's not car traveling six or 8,000 miles. It's a, it's overhead. So it's, it's very risky, very dangerous. If you take it in and you think about how do we detect uh, threats today, uh, we don't rely any longer on ground radar for the most part. Um, we use it, but we don't rely on it. We use space-based sensors to detect missile launches and to predict uh, where an ICBM might be coming and whether we should respond. And we have 15, 20 minutes usually to deal with that problem. It's not a lot, but it's better than nothing. Um, when you're talking about this thing, you have any time. I mean, a few minutes at the most. What if hypersonic missiles, hypersonic missiles travel faster than ICBMs? Oh, yeah. yeah, because remember, when you launch a, a regular rocket, it goes up under power and then it starts to descend, but it's no longer under power. It's now it's under falling. gravity. It's under gravity. So it slows down. Mm-hmm. So you've seen probably videos of some of these uh, ballistic missiles that have been launched by the Houthis against Saudi Arabia. And you can see the missile actually flying. I mean, it's very visible. We have a lousy system to deal with it, but but it's very visible. So it's not traveling that fast at that point. Hypersonic is a whole different kettle of fish. It's traveling at Mach 5, 6, 7, 10. On uh, impact. Until impact. Right. Yeah. yeah, so it's very scary. And you said that was the first reason. And what was the second? Well, because I think since a lot of our... our uh, sensors are space-based. Then you get into the Chinese effort to uh, clean out our military satellites and blind us. Mm-hmm. That's what this whole business of knocking satellites around and intercepting and all that is all about. Right. They've been they've been doing a, a series of tests uh, for quite a few years now under a program called Shijian, which right. means practice. 
And they had Shijian 17, that's a very dangerous one, and Shijian 21, the most recent one, uh, which was uh, six to 17 was in uh, 2016, and 21 was uh, this year. And these have, uh, these are uh, missiles that can be in geostationary orbit, or, and, and then they can move, and they can approach a military satellite and clock it, knock it out, or intercept it, or do whatever they want. Uh, they even have robotic arms on them. They can pull them out of orbit, capture them. I mean, there's there's a whole there's a whole process going on here. It's very scary, actually. Um, it's not something that we're unaware of. We, we know how to do this ourselves, but but uh, we haven't made a you know. There, there's a thing. There's a treaty that we are a signatory to. And so are the Chinese, which says we're not supposed to weaponize uh, outer space. And yet they're doing it on both ends. They're doing it with the hypersonic uh, glide vehicles, and they're doing it with their Shijian, their practice satellites. When was this? Uh, when was this treaty made? Oh, it goes back into the. I don't have a date on it, but no, but around. Um, I, I would say it was in the seventies. So it was. It was made before. Let's see. I'm trying to see if I have a date. Nineteen sixty-seven, actually. So so. Now, what I was reading uh, this week was that actually the United States was leading in in space uh, technologies in the 1960s, and it could have started developing uh, hypersonic missiles and uh, satellite killers or whatever at that time, and it chose not to because it didn't want to start an arms race in space. So was so so instead the United States bowed out of a space arms race and left the floor open to. Anybody who wanted to come in and do it on their own. Uh, well, hypersonic wasn't around in '67, but in principle, you're right. Um, and you know, the U.S. approach to all these things is to try and uh, uh, control it through agreements, treaties, arms control agreements, things of that sort. Um, and and the U.S. has generally followed the what they call the mutually assured destruction theory of. Uh, of nuclear deterrence. That is to say, if we have a sufficient deterrent and we can launch it, even on a second strike, the other guy won't do it because he's going to be wiped out. That's you know, the, it, it, I, I've been it. I've been doing my shows for the past three weeks uh, while my my normal partner is away um, with with our friend and colleague David Wormser. And so a couple of weeks ago, and I think we can probably turn to this soon, David was making uh, it clear that the U.S. concept of nuclear deterrence was never, it, it was never true. It was never correct. That it was never borne out by, by results. Um, that the Russians actually uh, were not going to be deterred uh, by the United States. And the only reason that, you know, that it didn't come to nuclear wars because the Soviet Union collapsed. And the same concept of nuclear deterrence, obviously, mutually assured de de destruction or, or any other you know, concept that they've, that they've constructed about it uh, is really just uh, self-dealing with the United States that uh, the Iranians never stopped their nuclear uh, operations, that any time that they agreed to limited constraints on their nuclear activities, it was because they needed to pause in actual uranium enrichment in order to absorb and develop further technolo technological ca capabilities that would, you know, in, in terms of upgraded uh, centrifuges 
and other things that that allow them to now be upgrading to 60% enrichment. And then back in the case of the Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union also was always doing the best that it could to be uh, as powerful from a nuclear perspective as as was possible and from all military perspectives, that they were not serious about uh, being contained by non-proliferation agreements, so that his argument was that the whole concept, the whole conceptual framework that the United States has been using to understand or develop rules for the use of nuclear weapons has really just been a a monologue that the United States has been uh, mistakenly viewing as as a dialogue. Uh, well, there's a lot of truth in what David says. Uh, I think he's he's exactly right. The uh, you know I was involved with the SDI program in, in the 80s in the Pentagon, and uh, the real opposition to it though came from the American scientists and the scientific community, the academic community, uh, and many in the government, especially in the State Department, who were exceedingly opposed to the idea that we would be able to defend against Russian uh, uh, space, uh, well, Russian rockets, essentially, ICBMs. And, 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 and you know, and, and yet, it's funny because if you go back to 62 with the missile, the Cuban Missile Crisis, it showed how naked we were. I mean, and, and how risky all this could be. And yet we plowed ahead with this kind of, what can we call it? A wrong-headed approach to deterrence. Um, it's not sufficient. We 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 should be building missile defenses that work, uh, as Israel has done, and quite admirably, I might add, as the Russians have done, as the Chinese are doing. I mean, none of them are sitting on their hands, and yet we are. We have almost nothing. So it there's a real issue of U.S. I mean, it puts the U.S in a very difficult position, not only for its own national security, but everyone relies on the U.S. for its for its help and support. That help could disappear in a, in a, just like that. So, so talk, talk, talk to me for a second about the uh, satellite killers. Uh, what is, first of all, what is this technology exactly? And, you know, what what would, if you were, if you were in charge of the Pentagon, you know, if you were Secretary of Defense, uh, what would you be doing in response to this? How how should the United States be looking at at China's advances in in the in this realm of being able to destroy satellites? Remember, some years ago, China shot down a satellite in a demonstration that they could do it, um, and the Russians did one too. So, in, you know, not just the Chinese, but the Chinese, Chinese made a mess, had lots of junk, space junk. Um, but in any case, it's one thing to fire a rocket from the ground into space, hit a satellite, and destroy it. It's another thing to have your anti-satellite weapons in space sitting there that you can use them in a crisis scenario or in a strategic scenario. So that if if they want to blindside us and take out our sensors, they could do it. Now, they can't yet. But they're pra- they're getting there. That's why they call these satellites Sujan practice, because <laughs> they're practicing, um, and it's, so it's different than firing a single rocket. It's they're they're sitting there tracking our military satellites, our sensors, and other military satellites that are up there, and and you know planning to swoop down. Look, the Chinese 
are planning for a war with the United States. There's no doubt about that. There's certain things they concern themselves with that you know we know about, like aircraft carriers. They hate those. They hate F-22s. Uh, they don't mind the F-35 so much, but they hate F-22s. Uh, they worry about our retaliatory capability, that sort of thing. And so they're trying to, to uh, uh, reduce their exposure to U.S. power and increase their own capabilities, their own military power. That's their game. And what would you do if you were Secretary of Defense? What would you be advising the president? Oh, first of all, you need to have a policy. We don't have a policy. I mean, the, the, we simply don't have a policy to answer the question of how we deal with a rising and increasingly powerful China. We used to have a, well, we, we screwed around with the Russians for a long time, too. Remember that until the Reagan administration the Russians were building, 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 spending 25% of their gross national product on military, huge amount. And, and we were watching them. We weren't doing anything. Nothing. Until Reagan said, we got to fix this. And so we went and built up our military the right way uh, and, and uh, uh, challenged the Russians. I think we have to do the same with the Chinese. You know, well, if, they want to put up, if they want to put up these type of satellites, we can put up our own and sit right on top of theirs. One of the, I mean, when when during during Trump's uh, four years in office, he kept talking about how he was massively increasing the size of uh, the military, and you know, uh, I don't, you know, incre vastly increasing uh, uh, weapons procurement and and the defense budget. Um, and uh, the question is, how far did he go in modernizing the forces that needed to be modernized? Did he did he was it helter skelter? Was it directed? You said we don't have a strategy. So what is it exactly that? He well, was... I think you have to go category by category. OK, so in the two categories we're talking about now or and the just space based missiles. No, nothing. And if you're talking about, you know, the other other categories of very little. Uh, air, and for ballistic missile defense, almost nothing. You know, we put a little effort into the Aegis system to improve it. We made a better uh, interceptor missile. We tried to improve the ground-based interceptor, but it didn't work. Uh, Israel took two uh, arrow missiles off to Alaska and fired them off, and they shot down the targets much better than the U.S. system. So <laughs> it, it's not a very it's, it's very discouraging when you look at the kind of skilled defense system that we have, the defense establishment in terms of manufacturing, technology development, all that. We have the capabilities, but we're not using them the right way. There's a leadership failure, not only at the presidential level, but more at the DOD, the Defense Department level, because the Defense Department should have been on top of all this stuff instead of wasting money on a lot of things which they don't need. You keep you keep talking about Israel's uh, missile defense systems, and uh, you know Israel is also developing the Arrow Four system with the United States now. Um, and I read a piece a couple of days ago indicating that that was going to provide some sort of hypersonic missile defense. Right. Uh, as well. So do you, can you can you uh, characterize that project and and also what it means that uh, Israel is working on this uh, program with the United States? 
Well, I have this suspicion that it's easier for the United for the Pentagon, at least these days, um, to work on a missile defense system in Israel than it is to work on a missile defense system in the United States for political reasons. <laughs> for political reasons. Because if you do it here, then every all these scientists are going to scream, we don't need missile defense. We can deal with, you know, we have to have a mutually assured destruction uh, approach to security and all that. Well, Israel does doesn't take that point of view. I mean, Israel's point of view is we have an enemy going to shoot at us. We better shoot and be able to deal with that. <laughs> and either by shooting down what they're shooting at us or taking the battle to the enemy or both, mostly both. Um, so that's point one. Uh, point two is that uh, Arrow 3, which was developed by Israel, with again, with the, the, the cooperation of the, you know, the U.S. Uh, ballistic Missile Defense Agency and the U.S. Congress appropriated the money for it. Arrow wasn't it also a, done with with Raytheon? It wasn't done in partnership with Raytheon. Yeah, with the that the that the layer of the defense producers. Yes. Oh, it was just production. Okay. I was just dealing with the political thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, Arrow three is an exo atmospheric hit to kill uh, interceptor missile, uh, and it can take out a a. a ballistic missile. That's what it's designed for, or the warhead of the ballistic missile, to be more precise. Arrow 4 is, I think, aimed at getting at hypersonic weapons before they can release the glider or whatever their, 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 the, the threat is. It's going to be exoatmosphere. It's going to detect sooner rather than later, and it's going to hit earlier, you know, in the in the envelope of the of the weapon, uh, presuming that it's supposed to be able to hit it in outer space before it crosses into the before atmosphere. it releases its warhead or glider, if it's a glider mm -hmm. uh, or whatever it is, it's going to try to get it sooner rather than later. The, the whole the, the, the best thing you can do about hypersonic is get them, you know, just after launch, if it's possible. Ultimately, you can only do that if you have a space-based interceptor. It's almost impossible to do it with a ground-based interceptor just because of, of the time and distance involved of launch and attack and sensors and all that. But uh, Arrow, you know, the threat to Israel is not quite the same as the threat to the United States because the Russians aren't threatening Israel with any attack. It's a, the, main, the main actor for Israel is Iran. And that's the other thing is that it would appear that, you know, given that Israel doesn't, isn't immediately, uh, isn't, I mean, Israel is the first target on Iran's target list for its, uh, for its missiles, for its uh, uh, future uh, nuclear warheads, God forbid. Um, so Israel is number one on the target list. The United States may be number two, maybe wherever, but it's not number one. In the hypersonic missiles, it would seem that the United States is number one target. So that here, what we would have, if if we have Israel producing the technologies for hypersonic missile defense, it would actually be primarily used by the United States. I mean, that's that's where it's most vital uh, to. I, I think the yeah. I mean, well, there's a couple of points about this. I I think what the interest is it's the speed of intercept. Um, 
you know, to match up to a hypersonic missile, you have to fly very fast. Yeah. And you also have to have very fast detection, right? I mean, everything right. is done. So everything, all, all the computers and the sensors and everything have to happen, in, you know, quickly. And I think what's in it for the United States is to is to learn more about how to do that. And so then you're going to need artificial intelligence if it's a maneuvering vehicle. All this stuff, I think, is probably part of the agenda for Arrow 4. But, you know, we don't really know much about Arrow 4 because if you read the press releases from, from the Israel, from IAI and others, it uh, doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't yeah. tell you anything at all. Um, so it's still a, a pretty secret program. Well, why don't we move for a second from, I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to, you know, have expletives just rise up in your throat when you hear how the United States has just voluntarily uh, developed technologies that can destroy it uh, and and share them with the people who who are planning for war against it, um, and at the same time not done anything. For an equal opportunity developer, so, yeah. Uh, kind of, except that the United States isn't taking any of the opportunities. It's not equal. I mean, it's making its enemies more equal than it is. It's enabling them. It's giving them free reign in something that it's denying itself. Uh, I don't not the ability the the that it is unwilling to develop in its own defense. Uh, so it, it's uh, it's hard to look at this as anything other than crazy. Um, and you know, it 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 uh, really kind of uh, resonates something that I read uh, yesterday. I'm writing a piece right now for Newsweek on how the United States is dropping the ball on China in the same way that it's basically dropped the ball on Iran uh, ten years ago and uh, in, in during the Arab Spring. And um, you know, I read the uh, White House briefing or readout or whatever it's called of the Quad Summit, which is uh, ostensibly. Uh, it's an alliance that the United States has put together with the Indians and the Australians and the Japanese, which is clearly directed against China. And uh, after the UN General Assembly meeting in September, uh, the leaders of India and Japan and, and Australia met with President Biden in the in the Oval Office. And uh, this was, of course, we didn't know, but it was a month after China uh, tested the hypersonic uh, missile. Um, and 90% of the readout, 80, 90%, uh, the vast majority of the readout has, it, it discusses two things. It discusses uh, COVID-19 and the production of vaccines and sharing vaccine technology with the whole world and vaccines with everybody. Um, and the other thing that it deals with is climate change. Um, and and they go back over and over and over again to all of the things that have to be done to reduce carbon emissions. And then at the margins of this readout, they talk a little bit about 5G technology and uh, having, uh, having uh, a competition in the 5G market. There's no mention of China by name, um, but there's no discussion of, uh, of mutual defense. There's no discussion of... Any, anything that that, uh, that that the Chinese would look at and think, gee, you know, uh, maybe they're serious about countering us. Maybe the United States is serious. You know, in the United States, most of the media attention was paid to the fact that uh, Biden couldn't remember the name of, uh, of of the Australian prime minister, Scott Morrison, which, you know, was was something. But um, 
But more importantly, you're having this summit a month after China uh, tests this missile that you have no defense against, and you're talking about global warming with your most powerful and important allies uh, that are also threatened by China. Yeah, well, it's not a it's not a uh, military alliance. I mean, in, in, there's no collective security piece to it. Uh, there's no single agreement, actually, written agreement to it. It's a quad meeting, a meeting, but there's no. It's not formal. So it means it's, nothing. Well, I mean, it means something. I mean, Chinese think it means something. That's good news. Uh, <laughs> But it's not uh, it's it's not a formal alliance structure that doesn't have any uh, uh, system to you know, trigger off a response if there's an attack by China on anybody. Um, it it also it's very strange because you know the big issue right now in in that part of the world is Taiwan, right? And, uh, and the Chinese are you know. Are flying uh, lots of airplanes around the island all the time, and they got naval exercises, and they've got you know they've got their their marines and their infantry practicing beach landings and all this crap. Um, but they're intimidating. They're trying to intimidate Taiwan, and and the administration you know doesn't really know how to handle it. They, they, uh, Quad could be a, a vehicle that would be of some possible help, not the most important one, because Australia is very far away, India is further. Um, they really can't do much to change the balance of power at the present time, maybe in the future, but right now, no. The, the, the main thing for the U.S. is to have, it has a defense agreement with Japan, of course, it's had it for years, mm-hmm. um, that should be strengthened. There should be a lot more equipment deployed to Japan, especially F-22s, which aren't there. But we need to strengthen this posture in Guam. We need to have a common command and control system that includes Taiwan so that there's a way to coordinate and deal with any battle that should develop. And we have to have an understanding that if the Chinese attack, we're going to respond. But Since there's we'll exactly attack. no understanding of that at this point. I mean, at this right. point, at this point, in fact, the understanding is that if 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 and when the Chinese attack Taiwan, the United States isn't going to do anything. I mean, at all. And I well, mean, I, I, you know, the United States would say we, we, we may respond, we may not respond, but you know, who knows? But right now, I mean, I, I'm just looking at it. It, it if I were, I'll, the I'll give you a, I yeah, let me give you a concrete example. All right. Every day the Chinese are flying fighter right. planes and bombers around Taiwan. Might be a surprise for them to meet some American aircraft flying in the opposite direction. They may not like that, and they may decide to cut cut it out. But no one's challenging them. That's what I'm trying to say, and 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 that's the that's the key to deterrence is to challenge the other guy, to make it clear that we're going to challenge. So yeah, I agree with you that that right now the U.S. U.S. is is practicing what it calls strategic ambiguity, which is nonsense which means we're sitting on our hands and we don't know what to do. We don't have a policy. And and that's very, very dangerous, I think. Because, you know, we had it in a much in a very tiny in a on a much smaller level uh, in Israel, which uh, this week I, I was very alarmed, although not surprised that um, 
the army was having this big um, um, war game and they had to deploy forces along Wadi Ara, which uh, is uh, uh, an important uh, highway artery that goes across the Galilee and up uh, to, to uh, the Golan Heights uh, from central Israel, uh, Highway 65. And it passes through a number of Arab uh, cities, and first and foremost, Um al-Fahim. And, um, and the army was thinking about maybe rerouting or changing the location of the operation in order to avoid having to transfer uh, forces uh, uh, on, on Wadi Ar, on, on this highway. Um, and thankfully, they decided not to do that. But the very question about whether we should do it or not shows that the people who are being deterred are not Israel's Arabs from attacking military forces that are moving across the country, but the army is being deterred. That they there was even any thought of not doing this. And so, um, you know, my my instinctive reaction was not only should we be going through Wadiar, but we have to do it every day. You know, that this is something that we should be doing in the morning, in the afternoon and in the evening every day, because if you don't have contact, then you don't have deterrence and you don't have control. And uh, and I think it's it's very much the same thing. But on the other hand, you know, you had the Chinese uh, were, were taking down U.S. aircraft. I mean, the the most famous example was during the Bush administration when they when they when they downed. A, what was it? A U.S. Uh, a surveillance uh, aircraft. In E3, yes, it was at Hainan. At Hainan. And, yeah. uh, and the United States uh, was flat for actually down it. I mean, it was a kind of crazy business where, where a Chinese pilot flew too close to the airplane and crashed into it, killed himself, and, and the plane was damaged, the E3, and it had to make an emergency landing in Hainan. So, you know, that's even better. They have suicide kamikaze pilots that are doing <laughs> it, you know, are doing it in time of peace. And uh, and and here and so here's the United States saying that they want strategic ambiguity when China's not ambiguous at all. It's very clear that it's on offense and it and it intends to uh, take Taiwan. And if and if I were the Taiwanese looking at the dynamics between the Americans and the Chinese, I I don't know. I probably would just uh, put up a white flag the minute that the Chinese started deploying forces in my direction because the Americans are not serious about defending me. Well, there was a very interesting picture, a uh, satellite picture published uh, yesterday of a Chinese uh, mock-up of a U.S. aircraft carrier yeah. in the desert on a rail. Uh, so it could be moved along this rail line. So it looked like it was a moving aircraft carrier where they could practice destroying it. Uh, that ought to tell people in the Pentagon that the Chinese are not going to wait around for us to decide what we're going to do. If they do something, they're going to decide what they want to do, which may include knocking out our aircraft carriers. If I were them, I would do that. So because they, they're not, as you said, they're not ambiguous as, as to what their problem is. They want to take over Taiwan. They don't want us to interfere, but they figure we will, even if we may not. And so they're going to knock out anything that threatens them. So I imagine the Chinese plan would include attacks not only on our stuff at sea, but probably on Okinawa, where we have U.S. Marines and U.S. Air Force. So I mean, yeah. I, 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 so you said rightly and, and I mean, and appropriately that the Quad uh, grouping is really just a 
nothing. You know, it's a diplomatic, uh, it's a diplomatic uh, political uh, statement of of uh, what can we call it friendship among these countries. So, you know, if I were if I were Modi or Japan's prime minister, whose, whose name, unfortunately, I can't remember. Um, but uh, if I were them, I would be very uh, distressed on my way back from Washington, back home, thinking about the the uh, total unseriousness of the of the Biden administration dealing with any of the things that I'm most concerned about. And what am I supposed to do? And I think, you know, and and it goes back to, uh, are we dealing with a world where the United States can no longer be viewed as a credible superpower ally for for all of the- We're running a definite risk in that direction in many many fronts, not just there, but also in Europe uh, as well, Middle East, of course, uh, uh, East Asia, North Asia. Uh, South China Sea. I mean, go on and on. Um, the U.S. is is uh, in retreat. I think that's but I've it's not just that. you know you can have retreats and you can have retreats. You know, I mean, because this is more than a retreat. You know, yesterday or the day before, um, there was a, a christening of a new uh, U.S. naval ship, uh, the Harvey Milk. And the officer who did the uh, who conducted the ceremony was the first transgendered officer in the U.S. Navy. Uh, and this kind of virtue signaling is is uh, devastating on so many different levels uh, to troop morale, to the seriousness of purpose of the U.S. military, and of course to how American enemies see the United States, and also how American allies view the United States. That this is what is important to the chief, to to the joint chiefs of staff this is what's important to the us military to virtue signal that they like transgenders um you know it's the same thing as the pride week or whatever at the us embassy in kabul uh yes it, it, it's totally it's it's totally insane and i remember one day when the state department flew the soviet flag over the building uh, because Why? they were uh, the, well, the reason was that then they could claim it was there was a Russian territory and they could do some things with the Russians that they couldn't do otherwise. But but it was uh, completely ridiculous. Uh, a lot of this is ridiculous. But I think the, the I think the U.S. military is still very good. Uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't think that they've that bad off. I think the leadership is bad especially at the very top, because it's political. It's trying to play politics when it should be playing, it should not be playing at all. It should be working on military plans, programs, policies that make sense, that, that, that can help us survive in a dangerous world. So that's my take on it. So when you look at, when you look at all of these things, when you look at the big picture, um, where, where do you think if all things remain equal, where do you think this is leaving the United States? Well, things don't always remain equal. I mean, you know, at some point when you when you I call it retreat, you can call it what you want. When you when you pull back and you and you're not willing to to commit forces, it doesn't mean the other guy won't. And uh, it means that you could get into a lot of trouble. 
and it may it may be you know we did it we did it foolishly in Afghanistan and look what happened look at that mess we we could do it elsewhere we could do it in Taiwan we could do it in Japan we could do it in the Middle East I mean we're already well along on doing it in the Middle East there have been some improvements uh, Carolyn I mean recently we've run some B1s around uh, Iran and we've shown it we've shown the flag and we flew with Israel and we flew with the Saudis and and others UAE uh, so there, there's some compensation, let's call it that. It's not all one-sided, bad, 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 but it's not good, not good enough. And I think what I when I look at all this, I think that it's it's really very important. And I don't know if we can do it with this administration or not, but you know, if the Pentagon could possibly get its act together and play the strong card rather than the weak card, we'd have a better opportunity. What would be to, the strong card? Well, I pointed out a few things we could do. For example, shadowing those Chinese planes when they fly around Taiwan, moving F-22s in, strengthening our naval cap capabilities in the region. We can, we're not going to invent new weapon systems tomorrow morning that'll do the job. We should be working on them, but we have to use the assets that we have, and we have to show that we're determined. That, will, uh, that alone will deter China and Russia too. So that's one of the things that I'm concerned about and also confused about which is timelines, right? I mean, in, in terms of Iran and their nuclear program, there are very conflicting views of what the timeline is. There are people who are saying as far back as, you know, 2008, 2009, that, oh, you know, Iran already has nuclear weapons. They got them from the Pakistanis. It's all, you know, whatever, it's a game over. And then you have people today who say, that Iran basically has already passed uh, the nuclear threshold and they now have independent nuclear capabilities. And then you had uh, the former head of Mossad, Yossi Cohen, saying at a, at a conference at the Jerusalem Post held a couple of weeks ago that Iran was years away from these capabilities. So it's a question you know, about, uh, it, it, there, it's an open question, what is the timeline on Iran? And, and by the same token with China, you know, there's a sense. I, 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 I think there's a growing. For well, I'll just speak of myself. I mean, I'm. I have a growing sense of despair about the possibility of the United States turning things around because it, the the way that the Chinese are positioning themselves and the the signals that they're that they're sending out is that they they can they're they're planning on moving very quickly. They're planning on moving the day after tomorrow, if not tomorrow. And uh, Biden is still in his first year, uh, and the Americans are are having uh, transgender naval officers uh, christen boats, named after gay rights activists from the 1970s, and and these are these are fundamentally unserious actions. And so the question is, how urgent is the situation? How how much time would the United States have uh, uh, to turn things around? It's a lot like 1979 vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. If you look, go back and look at that, we were kind of in the same situation that we're now in with China. And, uh, and it didn't change until the Russians made the mistake of invading Afghanistan. Um, and that seemed to change things. Uh, finally got around, well, Carter went away and Reagan came in, which helped a lot. Uh, we're not in that fortuitous circumstance today, but uh, I think we have to just use what we have right now to try and strengthen our position and, you know, kind of point defense in different places. 
to make it clear. And this is something the Pentagon can very well do without asking Biden's permission. I mean, they, they can deploy forces. They can, and they do to some extent, but they, you know, they can do a lot more. I'm sure they didn't get permission to fly the B-1s up the Persian Gulf last week. Um, and they don't get permission to sail through the South China Sea to keep the, the lines of communication, sea lines of communication open and to do freedom of the seas exercises. We can step that up a lot. There's a lot more we can do. We have the resources. Look, it's a, America's a very strong country. Don't get it. Don't mistake the forest for the trees here. It's still a very strong country. And China, above all, knows that. But we have to show them because they're going to treat us as if we're a very strong country no matter what. And if we're not prepared, we're going to get clobbered. So if we want to stay not prepared, we'll get clobbered. If we want to be prepared, we, they won't even take the chance. That's, That's my opinion. Well, what? How strong is China vis-a-vis -vis the United States? If you, if just a ballpark estimate, I don't think the Chinese match up very well in terms of strategic. I mean, it's strategic and tactical aircraft. Um, I don't think they match up very well in terms of submarines. I think their navy is is uh, improving, but it's certainly not a strong blue water navy like the United States. Uh, their ground forces are uh, bound to the continent. There's no way to move them today. They don't have that capability uh, in any large measure. Uh, I think that, you know, that's a lot of bluster, a lot of, and, and, and yes, they're doing a lot of new weapons. Some of them are really dangerous weapons, like the hypersonic weapons, uh, like the nuclear, the hardening of their nuclear assets. The, the, the Chinese are, are not as strong as they may have convinced themselves they are. And, uh, and yes, they're moving very quickly in terms of defense technology. It's very impressive, very impressive. But by the same token, we already have most of that stuff. So I, I think we just have to, we have to play a strong card here. And if we do it, we, we can deter them and, and then we can move on to, to developing a better better defenses. So I, think, I think basically what you're saying is that if the United States has plays a strong card. It shows the seriousness of its intentions and its power, that it'll buy itself time to develop the kinds of systems that it needs in order to defend against the growing China threat. Is that is that the the play that you would you would? Yeah, do? that's exactly right. Exactly well, I think, right. It I think that's all I can think of that we can do. Well, I, I think that's sound advice uh, uh, for for anybody. Really, it's a sound advice for Israel as well. I mean, you, you cannot allow people to think that you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is. And I think that the main the main risk that the United States uh, is is um, running here and and really is is losing um, is that by sh by acting in an unserious way. By making its primary job of the of the military and saying that the one number one strategic threat the United States faces is is global temperatures, um, that uh, that it 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 puts things in motion that can very easily uh, get out of control and be very devastating for um, right. the United States and for well, its that, that's why I said we need to get our Pentagon leadership, especially back on track as quickly as we can. When you hear, um, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of Milley 
and of the senior P- Pentagon leadership following the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right. Um, and then with all of the CRT instruction, the critical race theory indoctrination in the armed forces, um, that's on a lower level, but also um, it's the Pentagon in recent months has been subjected to very withering criticism in a lot of places. Um, do you think that they care or do you think that uh, the leadership is so tapped into and so 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 attached to the the uh, the progressive uh, uh, elite in Washington that it, it's it doesn't make the kind of impression that it should on on the leadership? In any other country, Millie and, and Austin would have had to resign after Afghanistan. Simple as that. It was a botched mess. And it was based on premises that were largely organized by Blinken and the State Department, which were completely wrongheaded, like the Taliban are our colleagues. And we can work with them. With complete madness. Um, and so we set ourselves up for getting screwed, and we got screwed um, just like that. But I think that, you know, if a self-respecting general like Milley should l- resign. And I think some people in Congress think that, too. Uh, he's lost his credibility with the public. And and, and I think it's, it's terrible to have that kind of leadership right now when the country is challenged. So... But that's not going to, you know, that's that's my. Yeah, but Biden view. backed him. I mean, Biden, Biden, Biden backed him up. Biden supports him. Biden's not asking him to resign. To the contrary, you know, Biden's attacking that, the people uh, that are attacking him. Yeah, because Biden is responsible for the Afghanistan policy, so he wasn't in a position to tell Milley to go away because. And Millie would say, but you told me what to do. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not surprised at that. I just think it's a question of, of, you know, any other country, they would have fired these guys. Yeah, but that's really what's, what seems so alarming, because even Carter, right? And you, you mentioned 79, and 79 was an interesting year because you had uh, you, the two main events were the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and, and, and the Iranian Revolution. But there was also solidarity uh, strikes in in uh, in um, in Poland and the rise of Pope John Paul II as a as a strategic figure in in ending the Cold War. But um, but you also had something else that happened with with uh, Carter, which was that he he did change. Uh, he did learn from his mistakes. I'm not saying that he became a great strategist but you know after the soviet invasion he he was pulling back you know yeah he just boycotted the olympics but he 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 started reassessing his position on the soviet union in, in, in a pretty significant way and then after the failed attempt to rescue the hostages in iran he's he didn't didn't he form delta force i mean he he started really investing in us special forces in a very very significant way so that he was able to look at these and then, failures. And then they failed in the rescue attempt. You remember that? No, but after the rescue attempt is when he really started oh. devoting a lot of, of resources to U.S. special forces. That's the whole point, that he, oh, yeah, right, right. he, that he, took, a, he took a lesson from U.S. failure and, and started and, and changed. And here you see 
uh, just a radical political ideology that seems to be at the heart of so many things that the Biden administration is doing internationally. And as a result, they're also impermeable to new information or either they don't care or 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 they're or they're fine with the results. But whatever the case is, you have these vast bureaucracies in the United States that are not learning uh, from experience. And, you know, we've had that problem in Israel for quite some time at the senior echelons of our military, that things happen and it and they and and the implications of things that happen uh, seem to take a long time if they ever do permeate into operational and strategic thinking on the part of Israel's uh, senior security uh, echelons. And I'm and I and it seems that that's the case in the United States today as well. Well, I don't know. I mean, remember that Carter for all his faults, had a pretty decent uh, national security advisor, Spigensky, Brzezinski, who was who was a very smart guy and and who had a good strategic sense, not only of of uh, well of the nuclear policy, but also as far as the Soviets were concerned, he wasn't exactly friendly with them. Um, so Carter was lucky to have him at that time, um, and. Uh, and, and and it was it was also the final failure of the detente policy that had been the uh, Nixon uh, Kissinger thing that had preceded Carter and, uh, and and turned out to be another failure. Um, so today I think it's very different because uh, at the time of Carter and uh, I think the Pentagon was pretty good in those days and the leadership was decent. Uh, Right now, I have no confidence in it at the top level. I have lots of confidence in it below that. In other words, I think that the fighting forces are, are sound, they're well-trained, they have good equipment for the most part. There's some deficits, but they have good equipment. Uh, they know how to use it. They've distinguished themselves in, in battle. They're battle-hardened, unlike the Chinese, which haven't fought a battle since 1979, and that was a small one with the Vietnamese. And before that, it was Korea. So they have very little experience. Um, we have lots of experience. Now, against insurgents and against insurgencies is different than a mainline adversary. But but I think even then, we, we, we do a pretty good job. Um, so uh, it's a little bit different. And I think that uh, uh, I'll come back to my main point. Whatever the decision is on who's, who's in charge of the Pentagon, uh, doesn't mean they can't learn something. And they have to listen to voices that say, you're, you're, you're leaving the barn door open uh, and you shouldn't be doing that. You're taking a huge risk. Do you know, um, there, there was a lot of talk, I, I know Trump was planning it or working towards it or beginning it. Of, um, and I'm not sure where the Biden administration stands on nuclear, uh, modernizing America's nuclear forces. Um, but uh, when you see what the Russians are doing and you see what the Chinese are doing, and, and by the way, when you see what uh, uh, other powers are doing, uh, regional powers, like first and foremost, obviously, Iran, um, you know, the question is how uh, it, it are are the are the Americans now working on on, on nuclear modernization? And well, yes, they are. I mean, I think that's going forward. Yeah, I think that part's OK. Um, and we're working on hypersonics, finally. You know, we have about three or four 
major programs going on that. But they're, you know, we're behind the curve, you know, especially on the hypersonics. Um, and my biggest concern is a lack of missile defense. Which okay, now I mean, we we wow. should we should we should uh, we should roll it up a little bit. But one one last question is is really about the allies because obviously sitting here in in Israel, I mean, there's a lot of uh, hostility, obviously that's being voiced towards Israel by very senior people in the administration, and you know, on 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 issues like is uh, like Jerusalem and Iran's nuclear weapons. The the you know, as we speak, they're already having uh, pre-negotiations, negotiations with the Iranians and, you know, they, the wild U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and Egypt are under sanctions. The United States is not enforcing the sanctions that that are already in, in effect against Iran. And it appears that the administration really wants to bring down those sanctions officially. Um, but But after the Afghan withdrawal, you had significant pushback from American allies who had been fighting with them in Afghanistan and were completely shafted by by the U.S. with the withdrawal and and first and foremost, the Brits. Um, And if we're talking about learning and we're talking about uh, the stability of America's alliances with Europe, with Asia, in the Middle East, even in Latin America, um, do you think that the Anger and um, and frustration uh, and and indignation that America's behavior in Afghanistan uh, at America's behavior in Afghanistan that was expressed by the British that was expressed by other U.S. allies by the U by by I mean everybody who was in Afghanistan with the United States uh, all the NATO forces in Afghanistan with the United States do you think that that had any impact? Yeah, I think it had a, it certainly has helped the Europeans think longer and harder and and be willing to invest more resources into a European defense rather than a NATO defense. So it's pushed that no, but I meant has it had an impact on America? I, look, I think that uh, oh, I don't think it had any impact in Washington. Impact. No. So, but because Washington doesn't take allies seriously anyway. So I guess that's really the last thing, you know, the thing that I liked the most about the Trump foreign policy and even was that as he was pulling away from uh, from wars in the Middle East and as as he was trying to diminish American uh, military footprint in Syria and the Persian Gulf in Afghanistan and Iraq, where have you, um, he was also empowering America's allies to defend themselves, he was backing them. And that was something new because America's policy towards its allies has always been keep them dependent on the United States and not allow them to operate independently. And Trump was looking at everybody more as peers, uh, near peers and giving giving Israel, giving the Saudis and others a, a, a green light to defend themselves and American backing to defend themselves. And, um, and I thought that that was a much more stable and secure strategic environment for all concerned. Um, well, it's being dismantled, as you well know. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> to put it simply, <laughs> that's uh, it's it's incomprehensible in a way because just because the administration wants to negotiate with Iran doesn't mean you desert your friends and allies. 
But the administration is the contrary. If you want to negotiate with Iran, the best way to do it is by empowering your friends and allies. Exactly. But but the the administration has taken the view that these are bones to be thrown to the Iranians. All right. Well, you know, very bad, very bad idea. Doesn't work. So I think that I think that the take home lesson for all American allies is that, you know, while the United States is having a. a nervous breakdown um, that uh, its allies uh, have to figure out a way to work with one another uh, and hope and pray that the United States uh, gets better leadership in in, uh, in the near future. I completely agree. All right. Well, you know, I appreciate that. I think uh, viewers, uh, we're going to sign off now. Uh, I want to thank uh, Stephen Bryan for joining me today. Uh, I think that this is a really important discussion that we just had because, you know, we always talk about things that are going on here in Israel, but I think that Israel operates in in a strategic context. And one of the main anchors of the strategic context that Israel has been operating in, as well as the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Indians and and the British and everybody else is is an anchor of their national security is America as a superpower. And uh, if the United States right now is in is in the midst of uh, uh, retreat uh, as a superpower, um, then then people have to be aware of that, and people have to be aware of the new situation and and uh, respond accordingly to to ensure that we survive this period. I think you know the other aspect of it, of course, is that all things don't remain equal, and China, Russia are filling this void that the United States has left in in the Arab world um, and in other places. And um, and on the other hand, uh, as as they do, America's allies are also reassessing so that, you know, each time that there's this kind of retreat on the part of the United States, it, it the next administration, the next Republican administration, the next strategically sane administration is going to have to deal with new conditions, that the world is going to be different in 2025 than it was in 2021. Absolutely. The power abhors a vacuum. So that's the risk, that's the risk environment we're in. Right. Well, I appreciate your I appreciate your thoughts and your knowledge and sharing it with me and with and with everybody who's watching. And we're going to have to have you on again soon because I'm going to we're going to have to talk about um, the F-35s a little bit more. And I want to talk to you specifically about Israel's strategic uh, environment vis-a-vis Hezbollah and and uh, Hamas and the missiles that are all pointing in, in our direction and how we should be looking at that, too, because I I can assure our viewers and our listeners that uh, Stephen Bryan has answers. So <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> well, you have, thank you, you Carolyn. Have, nice you to have, speak with you today. You have educated opinions. All right. Well, thank you very much. And take care, everybody. Remember to subscribe and to share our, our shows. Take care. Bye-bye.